Hey, welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. We are in part three of four of free marriage counseling, also known as a series called It's Complicated, a series on relationships. We've been talking about relationships, and maybe you're here uh, because your significant other came a few weeks ago, and then they came home after church on Sunday, and they're like, um you need to come with me to this next one. And you're like, no, no, no. And you're, and you're just like, maybe he said something like this. So tell me, tell me what, what did he talk about? <clears throat> well, uh, okay. I have a box and inside of my box is all kinds of stuff. I think about it. And my box is better than your box, but I'm not supposed to say that. Um, so um, you're supposed to like, I'm supposed to help you with your box. And I, I, you should just come. That's what, that's what the bottom line turns out to be. And so you're here, they drug you here, and we're glad that you're here. Um, if you feel like um, you are for equality in marriage and want to be on the same footing as them and know exactly what's happening, there's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks, and uh, parts one and two of the, of the conversation take place there. And the argument kind of builds on each other. So there are going to be a few things I might say that, um, like I'm leading into some assumptions. Uh, that's probably how we got to that spot. But essentially, we started the, the talks uh, by really saying that we all enter into relationships with a box of our hopes, dreams, and desires. Here how we, here's how we think life plays out best. Here's how we think if we do life together through marriage um, or long-term relationship, whatever, um, here's, here's the best way to do finances. Here's the best way to handle the work-life uh, home balance. Here's the best way to talk about what we finance and what we buy and what we lease and what we rent and what we you know, purchase or, or whatever. Um, he, here's how we'll handle family vacations and extended family stuff. And, and uh, we, we have it. We, we base that idea on what we've seen work in relationships that we admire or how we avoid things in relationships that we are like, I don't want anything. I don't want it to look anything like that. And so therefore, whatever they did, I'm going to be all for the opposite of those types of things, which is, you know, kind of fine. Other than the fact that we bring our box in as well as the other person brings their box in and we kind of exchange boxes with each other and be like, I need you to make all of these things come true. Um, and there's conflict in that because sometimes, sometimes they match, which is great. This is what we we're both on the same page when it comes to how many kids we want to have or, or where we want to live or um, all that stuff. But sometimes there's conflict. And so how do you resolve the conflict when, when what I want is different from what you want? And we're supposed to be doing this thing together. And we said there are a couple of options in there. One is you take the, the uh, low road and you're like, I just don't, I just, I guess I don't need anything for me. I'm like, I'm like I, I guess I'm fine. And we'll just let you do your thing. Um, or you say, no, I'm going to rise up to power and I'm going to be the person who's going to dictate what we're going to do. And both of those seem, obviously you come in uh, to both of those and realize uh, it doesn't take like a, a third person to be like, that's not healthy. You guys, we've got to figure something different out. But what we oftentimes fall into is this idea of compromise of, all right, well, we'll do things your way this time, but that means that we'll do things my way next time. And we, it's like the whole, I scratch your back, you scratch my back thing. And we get into negotiations and what starts off seemingly enjoyable turns into something almost transactional, doesn't it? Relationships over the long term start to feel like, okay, we're kind of, uh, we don't have a scoreboard. A, like there's not like a physical scoreboard, but in the back of my mind, there's a scoreboard. And I know that we did it your way last time. I know that you've had three guys nights since I've had a girls night. And if I, if I even want me to pull out the calendar, I can, I don't want to, cause I don't want to like have the appearance, but it feels very transactional. We can go through this idea of compromise and everybody begins negotiating. And the problem with negotiating in a relationship is that one of you is probably a better negotiator than the other person. You don't have to point fingers at who it is. You both know who it is. And that person oftentimes will win. The problem with winning in negotiations when it comes to long-term committed relationship is that when you win, 
the relationship loses. When somebody wins, the whole relationship loses. And so it's not just about who has the better argument, who can outlast them in terms of just perseverance for fighting for what they want. It's, uh, it's a loss in the relationship. And so in week one, we said that uh, it's important to understand, to be able to make a decision, to answer the question, what is it that they owe me? What's owed in this relationship? If I'm operating a transactional level and it's uh, I do this and you do this, what do I feel like they owe me? And the proper answer to that, if, for, if, you're a, if, if, if you value this relationship and, and really want it to work, um, I really think the, the honest answer from happy couples is simply nothing. Um, I am going to do everything. I owe it to them to do everything I can to make their hopes, dreams, and desires come true. And anything that's done for me, for my hopes, dreams, and desires, is just icing on the cake and is simply a matter of uh, of thank you. And it re- responds, or the proper response to it is simply gratitude. Um, I didn't expect that, but thank you. Because the problem in a negotiation type of relationship is that on, when I hand you my box of hopes, dreams, and desires, it doesn't feel like hopes and dreams and desires to my partner. It feels like expectations. It feels like you better do this. I need you to come through for me on this because I have these things that I need to come true. And when you're in a relationship and there are expectations, it's really hard to express love when you have expectations. It's hard to go above and beyond when something is simply expected of you. You're, when you go to a fast food restaurant and they deliver your food, you say thank you, but it's more out of like a cordial, this is how you're supposed to operate in like society. You're not genuinely like, thank you. I did not expect that. You're like, no, I gave you $5. You give me this filet of fish, right? This is how this works. It's very transactional. And it's really hard to go above and beyond that. When it comes to relationships, if it feels like it's, everything's in the world of expectations, then I can't ever show you that I love you um, because for you, you just expect that. that's what the wife is supposed to do. That's what a husband is supposed to do. And that feels very like defeating and it just doesn't work out in the long run. So uh, in week two, then we said it's a race to the back of the line. It's a, it's a race of mutual submission. I am called to do this. I'm called to, uh, my, my role is to consider my own selfishness, the, the greatest problem in this. And I, I can help make this thing better if I'm willing to kind of um, step back and put other, the other person first. And then the question that comes at immediately result of that, because we live in a self-centered culture that thrives on understanding what is the best version of me that I can be. Uh, the question that immediately comes to mind for all of us is, so if I do that, fine. Um, but what about my box of hopes, dreams, and desires? So what am I supposed to do with my box? Um, if I'm constantly doing my best to live up to your box and help you achieve your box, my box gets kind of left behind. And I don't think that that's fair. And Christianity feels regressive in this point because it feels like, you know, well, that's not really how society works. Society is all about you better get you. And, and as long as the relationship is kind of bettering you, then, then stay with it and stick with it. But the idea of sacrifice or selfless living um, really doesn't have a lot of ground and a lot of footing in this, in this way. So what do you do with your box when your dreams, desires, and hopes are not being met? You have a couple of options as I see it. One is to ignore them. Um, society will say, oh, just ignore those things. That's, uh, that, that's, your, that's your best way, which is like living in denial of all of the things that you're created to be. And, and again, that's not even really a great secular option. Uh, and it's not a great religious option either. It's not a great option at all because to deny them is to really deny who you were created to be like God made you, I feel like unique with unique talents, unique dreams, unique hopes. And, uh, and, and I'm definitely not saying, 
um, you know, deny them, act like, act as if they don't exist and be like this different person. That's not, that's not a healthy way. And number two is simply to stay busy. Um, I, I can stay busy. I can take my mind off of it by, you know what, I, I'm having some, some problems getting here with this, but if I can stay busy, if I can pick up golf, if I can uh, go shopping a lot, if I can do some retail therapy, if I, I can buy new stuff or, or explore this new option to make money on the side with this new side business that I'm doing, if I can just keep myself busy, then that should be enough. And that's a path that a lot, a lot of people choose. Um, but unfortunately, it sets you up for failure in the step three. It's kind of like the gateway drug to this next one, which is simply find somebody else. I find myself, I can stay busy, I can ignore it for a while, then I just find myself making myself busy, and then eventually I think to myself, oh, you know what, I kind of owe it to me. You know what? Screw that. It's my hopes, dreams, and this is who I am. I cannot deny me. So I will find somebody else who would be more adept at fulfilling my hopes, dreams, and desires in the person that I'm currently with. Now, here's the deal. If you're dating somebody, then this might be a really good option for you, okay? If you're dating somebody and your hopes, dreams, and desires box doesn't match up anything with their hopes, dreams, and desires, you're like, I want to have, a, I want to travel a lot, and I'm, I don't want to be tied down with family stuff. And he's like, well, I want to have kids right away. Let's just be, let's get into a minivan as soon as we can. Uh, then we, we, there's, there's conflict there. You probably, that might be a red flag, right? If your mom is saying no, and your friends are being like, he's cute, but I mean, ugh, then you should probably find somebody else. Now, if you're married, that is a little bit more difficult, right? Uh, it's not. It's not the fluid relationship of just. Oh, I'm, we're just dating. We're just doing this. Even even from a secular standpoint, it's like. Well, I mean, marriage has more commitment than that. And if you're religious and you have these these moral convictions about divorce, and it's either improbable or impossible for you to walk away uh, from it, then then it becomes really difficult. I mean, what do you do? What do you do when you're feeling this pull, this gravitational pull to find somebody else? If you're married, here's two quick reminders that I, I just wanted to throw out in a, in a simple ob observation. Uh, number one is this, that wherever you go, there you are, which sounds very Dr. Seuss-ish, and his birthday was yesterday. So therefore, yeah, it, it is a little bit. Wherever you go, there you are. Which means that you take you with you into all the different relationships. So if you've experienced brokenness over and over and over again, it might be partly your fault. You know what I mean? And so if you think, you know what, the problem here is clearly I need to find somebody else who's going to fulfill my hopes, dreams, and desires, and there's a breakdown in a relationship, just, just remind yourself, I take my mess with me wherever I go, and that, that's kind of an important thing. And then number two, remind you, a reminder that they are currently on their best behavior. That person that you think is a much better option towards filling my hopes, dreams, and desires, you need to know that they are on their best behavior, just like the person that you're currently with was on before you got married, right? So what they are, they once were, and what they are currently he once was all that kind of stuff so anyways there's it's a, just a giant mess and the grass isn't green on the other side it's probably the easier way to say it and the observation i have at this point is if we said that christian marriage is characterized by the best way that we can put this thing forward is to live a selfless life and to live this idea of putting other persons first the observation is that people don't rush into a new relationship because they're eager to in uh, to give their lives to somebody else I've never heard of somebody going, you know what, I, I need to get out of this. I need, I need somebody else who's worthy of my gifts. <laughs> they don't say that. They say, I'm not getting what I ought to be getting in this current relationship, so I'm going to go find somebody else who might be able to give it to me, which is a self-centered approach as opposed to an other-centered result, which is, uh, might be, you know, it's true, uh, and it, it might be a harsh reality, and you owe it to yourself to realize that and, and like, say that out loud. 
Even if you're going to go through, you know what, Brent, I'm still going to go through with it. I'm still going to find somebody else because I deserve somebody who's going to meet my needs in this way. And I, it's not about me giving myself to somebody new. It's about somebody doing something for me. Just at least you owe it to yourself to at least verbalize that out loud or come to grips with this because it's important to be able to do that. No. So that's an aside. Um, let's get back to the real genuine question, which is, so what do I do about my box? I got this dang box of all, all these hopes, dreams, and desires about what successful life looks like and what long-term relationships look like, and I'm struggling with this, and I'm going to do my best. I'm committed to seeing the other, you know, investing myself into the other person's box and being grateful at any time anything's achieved by me, but what do I do with this because I just can't get over this hump? Now, the beautiful thing is I think the guy in Scripture, there's a person in Scripture who writes uh, a lot about this and gives us a method for understanding that what this is true, and it's not... It doesn't doesn't come from a book on marriage. Um, it, it, in fact, it's not even the context isn't even marriage. It's about relationships, which is how relationships work. And marriage is one of the most intimate forms of relationships. So I think it applies in, in a big way. It's written by a guy named Peter, who is probably a recognizable name. You probably know a friend named Peter who is, you know, got that religious name because Peter was one of Jesus's like top three. Um, he had kind of what's called an inner ring of disciples. He had his 12, but then he had Peter, James, and John, who were kind of like the guys, you know? Um, and Peter was the guy who was on top of a mountain in Caesarea Philippi when Jesus asked him the question, hey, what are people saying about me? Well, some say this, some say this, some say this. And what about you? What do you, think you want? what do you think I am? I think you are the Lord, the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think you are the Messiah, the one that we've all been waiting for. And Jesus turns to him and he says, Peter, on this rock, on that statement right there, I'm going to build my church. My church is going to be built on that. I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So Peter became really the overseer of the entire church organization. And in fact, even modern day Catholicism uh, believes that the, the current popes descended from the line or come from the line of Peter. He was the very like first pope of the church. Oversight over doesn't specifically isn't assigned to a certain parish, but oversees the organization. That's what Peter became in the early church. So you would think that with that kind of an authoritarian position, we would have multiple books or the majority of the New Testament would be written by Peter, but it's not. Most of it's written by Paul or some of the disciples who wrote about the life and the teachings of Jesus through the gospel narratives. Peter really only comes to us in, in like a couple of books really tucked away towards the end of the New Testament. But in that comes this really brilliant insight into relationships. First Peter chapter 5. Um, the context of the passage is um, he's talking to young believers in the church, and he's trying to tell them, hey, you should listen to your elders, come under their authority, um, be careful about putting new believers into positions of authority within the church. Some of that maturity just takes time. And then he has this phrase where he says, all of you, verse uh, 5 of chapter 5, all of you, meaning this is elders, young people, everybody in this church, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. So the response is, what do I do with my box? The answer is going to be, you approach it with humility, and I'll explain what that plays out in a, in a minute. Because humility is not something that uh, uh, we typically like. We like it in other people. We want other people around us to be um, humble, um, and we consider ourselves to be humble, but we never can claim it, because once you claim humility— that's like not humble be like, I'm the most humble person, you know, you know what I mean? Like, 
oh, wait a second, that's a double negative. I can't do that. Um, and so we want to be humble. Um, and I think we probably give ourselves more credit than we ought to in, the, in this realm. And Peter's trying to say here, listen, clothe yourself with humility. And that clothing is basically like, what, the, the word that he uses there is, uh, it's almost like you, you put on a specific clothing to deal with the mess. There are specific outfits that you put on. If you're a nurse, you put on scrubs. If you're a mechanic, you put on that adult onesie thing because you're going to get grease everywhere, right? And so you put on, knowing that a mess is coming, I'm putting on this piece of cloth to do some, some dirty work. I'm putting my work boots on, basically. He says, put on humility. Ask your, or this may be a better way of saying it. Ask yourself, in this scenario, what would a humble person do? What would a humble person do? And Peter would say, I think, you owe it to yourself to even ask that question. Whether or not you follow that out and actually do what you came up with as an answer, you owe it to yourself to ask that question. In this relationship, what would a humble person do? How would he or she respond in this way? Now, I have to say tongue-in-cheek as I talk about this, because last night I'm playing cards with my wife. We play um, gin rummy. Um, and uh, this, that's like our little go-to game. And uh, we started playing last night, and she got out to a pretty big lead. You play to 100. Here's how it works. You play to 100. She got out to an 83-0 to zero lead, right, which is like <laughs> significant. And she's won the last couple. And I've tried to say it's because I, you know, I'm trying to be a smart husband about this thing and be gracious and all this. And uh, so she's there, 83, and she gets there, and she starts, you know, doing her little smile thing and like, you know, man, if you want to start trying, you, you can, you, do you understand the rules of the game? Do we not watch a YouTube video about how to play? Uh, she didn't say that, but I, that's what I'm reading into it. Anyways, um, so I told her, I said, now you better finish me off because if you leave a door open, it's kind of like um, baseball. The difference between baseball and football is in football, you can just let the clock run out. But in baseball and tennis, you have to finish them off because if you don't, if there's always a last out, there's always a last strike, that kind of thing. You have to finish it. And so I said, you better finish me off because I'm going to come back and beat you. And she's like, all right, well, we'll see. So um, sure enough, I start creeping back in. I get like 12 points and then 15 points and then 25 points and then 30 points all the way up to 73 points. So it's 83, 73. This is last night, by the way. Oh, and she had asked me too, hey, what are you speaking? on tomorrow. I'm like, humility. And she's like, oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and she, she said, do you have any funny parts yet? And I'm like, nah, it's, it's weird. I mean, it's like a, it's humility. And then it goes a little bit dark into some prayers that we'll, we'll talk about in a second. And I'm talking about super ex extreme conflict in marriage. And, and so it's just like, there's not a lot, a lot of great humor points. And so she's like, oh, okay. So anyway, we get to 73, 83. And, uh, I said, now here's the deal. You know, if I get a 25 point hand in this, because it's one of the things you can get, like I'm, I'm gonna win. And if I come back, if I come back from 83 nothing and beat you, I'm gonna run around this living with my shirt off, waving it around like Cotton Eye Joe, just so you know. And I know that London has a friend over for a sleepover, and I don't even care. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. And I'll apologize to the parents later, right? So we get this hand going, and I realize about like four hand, like four tricks in, or whatever you want to call it, four turns in, that I've got a pretty good hand, and I'm gonna win. And so I do my little thing that I do when we're playing games. I pull out my phone, and she knows what's gonna happen. I open Spotify, and I get on Spotify that DJ Khaled "All I Do Is Win" song, and and I just get it ready. I'm not ready to play it yet, but I, what I want to do is I want to play the hand down and then play the song. That's how. That's my methodology. And so 
she's like, is somebody texting you or calling you? It's like 9.30 at night. I'm like, no, 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 it's good. I just, it's a, it's a, I don't know what it is, something on Facebook or something. And uh, so then that comes, it's my turn. I flip over the cards. All I do is win, 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 right? So that's taking place. I don't get up and take my shirt off. I can't, I, for the sake of the kids, I, I, I kept it on. Um, and, uh, and, and she's like real, real humble. I can't wait for you to talk about that tomorrow when you talk about <laughs> humility, right? <laughs> so what would a humble person do in that scenario? Not that, okay? <laughs> Something different than that. Anyways. Did not choose the path, did not practice what I preached in that moment. But Peter goes on, First Peter chapter 5, verse 5. All of you, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. Why? Because, here he gives us a reason why. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor or grace, a better word there is grace, to the humble. He pulls this um, proverb from the book of Proverbs, this Jewish collection of teachings that every Jewish dad was expected to teach his Jewish son about the practical ways in which life works. It doesn't always work out this way, but this is just a generally good way of doing life. And the verb involved in that proverb is a present participle, which means it's not like this is what he has done or will do in the future. It's currently how God operates. God finds himself leaning towards those who are humble and leaning away from those who are proud. That's how these Jewish kids are learned, are taught why you shouldn't be uh, prideful because God leans away from those types of things and towards those who are um, humble. Then he goes on, humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, under his mighty hand, which is a symbol for his authority. Um, you know, whenever a king would have it, my right hand is my, my best soldier or whatever. So this is his authority. Or when he, when he goes out in the community, he operates under my authority. That's, that's basically what's going on in this way. And then he continues that he might lift you up in due time. Humble yourselves therefore into God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time, which is kind of a sort of a, a promise an expectation, a longing, a looking towards a saying, if I choose the path of humility, then in time I am lifted up and what I want is finally resolved. And, and, and it's not like three months, you know, 90 days of your money back. Um, it's not anything like that. And it's not even in this lifetime. Like he, he, it's, a very, it's a very broad and general statement. But it's a, if you will trust in this, you can trust that God is faithful and just to be able to come through and lift you up in due time. And Peter, I think at this point, thinks about how do I make this more practical and goes on in verse 7, which, by the way, starts a new sentence in the NIV and, and most English translations. But in the Greek, um, this would be one continuous thought. So let me, let, me, let me read it better. It's going to show up different on the screen, but it would say this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up by casting your anxiety on him or casting your burdens, some translations have, or troubles or pain or the thing that is dragging you down. Cast your anxiety on him. And what he's doing again is borrowing from the Old Testament scripture. And this is an invitation, by the way, to unload on God. <clears throat> what does he mean? Cast your anxiety, cast your burdens, and cast all that weight on God. It's essentially as if Peter is trying to encourage his moderate, that, that present day for him uh, audience to say, quit praying polite prayers. Have you ever thought about praying some kind of nasty ones, some troubled ones, some PG-13, potentially R-rated prayers? Have you thought about being honest 
in your prayers. And again, he pulls, he pulls something from Old Testament scripture. So he, he does this twice in this exact same passage, once from Psalms and this time from, um, sorry, once from Proverbs and this time from Psalms. And he reaches back into the songbook of the Jewish people. The book of Psalms was basically a collection of songs that we sing uh, together. Um, and we put some of them on the screen because they're so they're so honest in their language. Like we, we try so hard to um, make the authentic reality of life come through. Like you walk through the doors on Sunday mornings and everybody's like, hey, hands you coffee and says, hey, how's it going? And you feel obligated to be like, fine. Even when inside you're going, it's horrible. Thanks for asking. You know what I mean? Um, because that's not the right scenario. That's not the right environment for it. And I, I get it. And there, unfortunately in our society, there's just not a lot of great options for that. And so when you come in, the church is supposed to be this place where um, there's this connection point with God where it, it, do you, are, are you feeling like everything needs to be positive? Are you feeling like God expects you to be like, hey, I know it's been in trouble, but you're in church. So could we just like it up here a little bit. And the Psalms were never meant to be that way. When you read the Psalms, they are constantly PG-13, R-rated. They are constantly anger issues with God. Some of them are songs of lament, which is like deep, deep sorrow. Some of them are songs of praise and joy. Some of them would be songs that they would sing on their way up to the mountain of Jerusalem and down from the mountain, songs of ascent and songs of descent. But all of them are very in touch with an emotional thing, which is why there are words on the screen during that time where we put them up there because there are sometimes things that I would never verbalize um, but I, I like to see them verbalized because inside of me, I want to say almost like me too, like add me to that. Or if this was like a, a Facebook story, I'd press the little like and the little, you know, like bubble would rise up. You'd be like, yeah, that's me. That's me. I'm in that. Like I, we put them on the screen in between songs, maybe not so that you would read along with them audibly, but so that in your heart, you'd be like, gosh, I feel that way. Yeah. I can identify with that pain. I can identify with that darkness. I can identify with that joy or that longing or that desire. So Peter reaches back and pulls out Psalm chapter 55. And I want to walk through this. I want to read this Psalm with you. And I want you to notice the language that's involved with this. Again, he says, cast your anxiety on God. And you'll see that show up in this passage. So Psalm chapter 55, uh, verses 12 through 20 something. Um, if an, here, here, here starts. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend. In other words, he's saying, I've been hurt and I've been betrayed by somebody close to me. Not somebody I'm like an acquaintance with or somebody I work with, but somebody who I had an intimate relationship with, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God. We went to church together. We did life together as we walked about among the worshipers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead for evil finds lodging among them. See, that's pretty dark. The uh, modern day equivalent of that phrase would be this, to hell with them. I, literally, right? I mean, to hell with her. Screw that guy. To hell with him. That would be the language involved. And this is what David's crying out. Like, 
not something that is uh, PG-13, or, or sorry, not something that is, that is typically uh, uh, talked about at, at church on Sunday, or, or, or um, we don't sing a lot of worship songs <laughs> that involve those types of things. And yet they did, right? This was like in touch with the emotional side of this. He goes on, verse 16, as for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. David writes this. He's been betrayed probably by somebody he felt like this confidence with and, and covenant with. And he says, I cry out like I'm broken and, and I, I, there, I've got to vent to somebody or something. And so I put it in a song and I sing it to God. I don't bottle this up, but I, I let this thing out. He rescues me unharmed from the battle that wages against me, even though many oppose me. Verse 19, God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. My companion, verse 20, attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. Covenant is simply a promise, but it like, comes with a relationship that backs it, right? So it's not, a, it's not a business type promise. Like I promise if you give me $100, I'll deliver this good to you. It's a promise that you know who I am, so therefore I promise this. And then he breaks it. He said he would never, and he did. She promised to stop, and she didn't. She said she would always. He said he would always, and they didn't. There's this break in this relationship. Verse 21, his talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. In other words, from the observation point of outsiders. He talks a good talk. He lives a good game. People find themselves going, oh, she is so sweet. And in your mind, you're thinking you should see how she is at home or you should see how he acts at home. He's such a good worker. Uh, really? Cause I got about 10 projects at the house that I've been, you know, all this kind of stuff. Verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. You see, Peter reaches back, pulls out a, a song, a verse, a context that every single one of the, the people reading that in his original audience would know where this comes, comes from. They'd be like, oh yeah, 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 Psalm 55. And I took a class when I was at, at seminary and he said, anytime that there's a reference to the Old Testament made, you really have to go back and read it in its full context. Don't just take that verse and be like, oh yeah, they pulled that verse. Look at the emotions, the contextual emotions surrounding that and bring that into this. It, that sort of emotion informs what he's talking about. So knowing all of that, knowing it's about betrayal and about um, the other person seemingly getting away with it in the eyes of the public, and yet behind closed doors, you're like, there's just so much animosity and so much anger and so much resentment because he broke his promise. She broke her promise. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. And then this is the concluding phrase. This is the end of the psalm. Mind you, it doesn't resolve well, okay? But you, God, will bring down the wicked into the pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their days. <laughs> the end. <laughs> clap, clap, clap. Let's have John and Aubrey sing this song, right? Pretty dark. This is not nice, all right? But it is honest. It is honest. It's not typical of the prayers that we pray, but it is an honest prayer that we have probably neglected to say because we don't want to put God in that position or we feel guilty about it. 
we feel like, oh, he doesn't want to hear this, or oh, he'll be so disappointed with me. <laughs> he knows that I'm thinking about this. He knows that I live this out with my friends when we're at the bar and happy hour and we're talking about this, and I can't wait to talk about how scum this boyfriend is or husband is or whatever, and yet I can't really bring this to him because I'm supposed to keep it like at least PG. I mean, maybe if I'm generous. And Peter's trying to say, no, 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 um, when you have a breakdown of frustration because my ho hopes, dreams, and desires are not being met, um, you take that bucket, you take that basket of all of those things, and you throw them at me. You throw them at me. You cast your anxiety and your troubles and your burdens on me. I've got my big boy pants on. I can handle it. Listen, if you are a parent, at some point you will be a parent of a, like a teenager and your kids are going to say some things to you that are pretty hurtful. And there's going to be everything within you is going to be like, I raised you for 17 years and this is how you repay me. And yet at some level as a parent, I think it's, I mean, I'm, my, my child, my oldest is only 10, but at some point you kind of want them to be honest with you because it shows that they still care about you or rely upon you. The worst part would be that they just ignore you or they only bring the best things to you or they don't really bring who they are. They bring a shell of it because that's what they think you expect from them. And if you've created a culture where you can't be authentic because, you know, I don't want to deal with a mess. I, I work hard enough already. I've got enough hours in. I, I just don't have this. Um, then you can see from that standpoint how that can affect the parent-child relationship. And I really do think your heavenly father is up there going, bring it to me. Cast your anxiety, cast your doubts, cast your fears, cast your frustrations on me. I'm big enough to handle it. I care about it. And the reason I care about it is because you care about it and I care about you. So if it's something that is bothering you and I care about you, then it bothers me too. And my promise to you is that I will lift you up in due time. That if you've got frustrations and anger issues when it comes to marriage and close relationships or whatever uh, that is, instead of uh, redirecting it into a different hobby or responding or reacting to it with a double dose of anger or saying, uh, well, let's make this right. You know, do the whole compromise of we'll, we'll do it your way this time, but my way next time. He says, bring that to me instead. I'm big enough to be able to handle it. First Peter five, seven. I want to finish that phrase, that thought off. He brings in Psalm 55 and then he finishes it with this, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. You are going to unload all of this somewhere. Your heavenly father says your best bet, your best bet is to start with me. Your best bet is to start with me. That when you experience a shortcoming from what you expect and what you wanted with your hopes and dreams and desires and what I feel like I can get out of this, Instead of reacting in anger in that way, would you begin to pray, not polite prayers to him, not refined ones, not ones that you thought about. And I don't think this will be offensive to him, 
you should read the book of Psalms and read some of these out there and be like, this is super offensive. In fact, if you want to start because what you want to say is feels too offensive, then find one of these and just read that and be like, he can't be mad at me because I'm just reading his book that he's told me to read anyway. So um, you can't be mad at me for this and then work towards a relationship where you recognize my heavenly father cares enough about me to get the real version of me with anger and bitterness and really I say discontent, but it's so much stronger than that towards this other person. Begin to pray real prayers. Happy couples know that I put other people first, that I race to the back of the line. And when I have this anger and vent stuff, when I got this this frustration about how it works out, it's not right for me to expect you, the other person, to fix this. I take it to somebody who actually can do something about it. There's one more part that I think is important for us to come to grips with, but we're going to save it for next week. Hopefully you come back for part four of It's Complicated. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is uh, one of the hard spots to be in for us because um, we've kind of played it safe when it comes to uh, voicing our opinions back at you. We, We think that you kind of sometimes kind of the way that we kind of get dressed up for church because we want to show our best, uh, put our best foot forward and and appear like we've got it all together. We kind of take prayers sometimes and act as if we've got those all put together for you as well. And yet what we see over and over in scripture are people who come to you with their messes and uh, you don't respond with anger and you don't respond with, we'll figure it out or I can't believe that you would do this. You respond with grace. And uh, that's so desperately what we need. We apologize for those times in our life where we've taken the path of reaction. We've taken the path of of coming back at the person who is uh, not doing the things that we expected them to do. We instead place our hope and our trust in you and humble ourselves um, to the point of telling you that if you can't fix it, I I don't know what I'm going to do. That's really the spot of humility. So give us the wisdom to know what this looks like in our life. The courage to act on it in your name. Amen.